Welcome to Animal Airwaves Live here on Florida's 89.1 WUFTFM. This is our weekly hour-long show devoted to the discussion of the health and welfare of animals. I'm Dana Hill, and I'm very happy to welcome back to the program today from the University of Florida College of Veterinary Medicine, Dr. Dunbar Graham. And we're going to be talking today about his area of specialty, which is veterinary dermatology, but in particular... This is another in our series about itchy pets, and this is something that many of you are concerned with because it is an ongoing problem, certainly in Florida, but everywhere else, too. If you have a question, our telephone number is 352-392-8989. We'll be back with more Animal Airwaves right after this. Welcome to Animal Airwaves Live here on WUFTFM, our weekly hour-long show devoted to the discussion of the health and welfare of animals. I'm Dana Hill, and I'm very happy to welcome back to the program from the University of Florida College of Veterinary Medicine, Dr. Dunbar Graham. And we're going to talk today about his area of specialty, veterinary dermatology, and in particular, of course, itchy pets. Today's the 13th of December, and if you'd like to join the conversation, we'll be taking calls in a little bit, 352-392-8989. Dr. Graham, itchy pets, we've had this discussion before on the show, and it always generates a lot of listener interest because it is such a common problem. It is almost by definition a persistent problem. It's probably never going to go away as long as the earth exists, that there are going to be some parasites. There are going to be things that irritate our pet's skin because as living things, we get allergies and whatnot. This is a big business, right? The business of itchy pets. It's actually a huge business. And throughout the recession, parasite control amongst uh, the veterinary field was one of the stellar producers uh, within the pharmaceutical industry because it's so important. There are probably dozens of products that exist on the market that people can use, maybe even both like prescription or even over-the-counter stuff. And, And this is a market that is has developed in the last 20 years in a large way, it seems to me, because as, as I, I've spoken before on the on the show, I seem to recall when I was younger that the best you could get was a flea collar for your dog or cat, and then that was it, and those weren't really that effective anyway. A- absolutely, and some of it was spreading the active ingredient of that collar over the entire pet. So in the day back then, we would dip or sponge bath pets with really insecticides that were also toxic to mammals. But many of the newer anti-parasitic or flea control and tick control products are directed specifically towards their particular nervous system and have minimal, if any, toxicity on the mammal nervous system. They still potentially have side effects, but compared to the old days, they're way safe. So by way of establishing some background here, let's talk about the myriad things that can cause our pets to have dermatological distress, can make them itchy. At the front of the list, probably fleas. Absolutely. Even if you don't see them, they're so ubiquitous in our environment that every pet in Florida should be on some form of flea preventive therapy and heartworm prevention therapy, just like most of us have something in our house to keep the cockroaches at bay or the other insects. It's where we live, and it's the most common cause of itching that I see. 
you probably see a lot of these cases, and probably almost any veterinarian would. People come in very frustrated. Ah, my dog is always scratching, or my cat always seems to be itching. However, it occurs to me that sometimes in a household, the animal's owners will not even recognize themselves that there is a flea problem, but the pet thinks that there is a flea problem. <laughs> exactly. And, you know, pets are, are great things. Even things like a flea infestation doesn't bother them sometimes unless they're allergic to them. So fleas much prefer being on cats or dogs than people. So by the time a person recognizes fleas on themselves, the flea control problem has gone out, mm-hmm. out of explosion control, I guess I would say. Yeah. Yeah. I I don't know a lot about the life cycle of insects, but it occurs to me that it's in multiple stages. And when you see adult fleas, that is kind of just the tip of the iceberg, so to speak. Yes. And some people will draw a triangle, if you will, with the adult flea being at the top and the base being what they call the biomass. And uh, so literally hundreds, if not thousands of pre-emergent fleas. Fleas go through a life cycle a little bit like the moth and butterfly and the caterpillar phase. And then the pupal phase just encases itself in almost its own cocoon and can survive for a year waiting for the opportune time to come back out. That uh, sort of in an evolutionary way is very very good for them, but they're certainly not as attractive as butterflies and moths and certainly much more of a nuisance. I have never heard anybody complain about all these. I've got this butterfly infestation. But fleas, they want to bite us. They want to bite our pets. And this is where the the distress comes in. Absolutely. In order for them to complete their life cycle, if you will, they have to take a blood meal. Yeah. So Immediately upon emerging from this this cocoon phase, if you will, they start jumping towards something producing carbon dioxide, typically an animal, or something that's moving or even a shadow, something causing vibration. They just jump like crazy looking for blood. They're vampires in a way. <laughs> <laughs> so if fleas need this blood meal and if, say, you live in a house with just one dog or one cat and there is relatively – I want to say, like, relative to the number of fleas that might be in the house, there's a small opportunity for any individual flea that may be born in the house. So let's say you've got a house that's 1,200, 1,500 square feet. You've got carpet or maybe even some sort of wood floor that has cracks or crevices. There could be hundreds of millions of flea eggs in there, possibly. I don't know. Uh, Absolutely. I think within a week or two, one flea can produce 500 eggs. Okay. Without batting an eye. Wow. Okay. So a huge number of eggs, and many of these will hatch and eventually become adult fleas. So a goodly number of these fleas must not ever complete their full life cycle. Maybe they don't ever manage to find the cat or the dog. uh, But nevertheless, the ones that do are going to reproduce, so the problem is just self-perpetuating. Exactly. Hmm. Okay. So fleas are one of the things that can really cause our animals distress and itching. There's another one that that happens probably more to pets that go outside, and that would be ticks, right? Yes. Are ticks a problem? Ticks, uh, depending on your location, can be a, a huge problem. They're obviously easier to see and in some ways easier to control. So it's more of a discreet, well-documented issue than the sneaky flea. Mm. But 
ticks carry some diseases that even fleas do not. That's a general conjecture, but as we learn more and more about these diseases, uh, researchers in the field are beginning to uh, come to the realization that fleas do carry many of the same diseases that ticks do. Going back even to the dark ages, uh, the plague was transmitted by fleas from rodents. This is funny you should bring that up because it is... It is pretty clear that fleas are the enemy of people. I mean, going back to the Middle Ages, fleas have been a huge problem and no amount of uh, wonderful sort of uh, metaphysical poetry from, you know, somebody like John Donne is going to change people's minds about like the flea. Uh, It is this horrible, filthy creature that sucks our blood and causes us trouble and lives where we live and spreads germs and pestilence. And though, you know, thankfully, at least in uh, the United States, in the Western world, the plague is less of an issue as it once was, and it's not likely to wipe out a third of us, it is still really inconvenient and just kind of gross. And yet every time that you pick up and hug your cat or your dog, there's probably a flea or two there. You know, if, you, if you're on routine, regular, and typically monthly flea applications, the chance of you actually having a flea survive on your pet for, for more than a few hours is, is minimal. And that's why that regular application is, is so important. And, and to pick a modern-day plague, if you will, uh, we're now becoming uh, concerned that the fleas may be transmitting Lyme disease or Bartonella and, and these other insidious diseases that f- aren't fully understood yet. Yeah, I mean, this may be a little bit outside of our topic area, but how susceptible are pets to Lyme disease? Uh, you're outside of my expertise, but definitely they get it. There's vaccinations for it as, as well. They're not quite as strong as some of the other vaccinations in providing most of it. But if you're in a high-risk environment, and that's why you should check with your, your primary care veterinarian, is, is where I'm living a hot spot for Lyme disease? Or do I travel to the northeastern United States? And That's Lyme disease. We hit on this a little bit earlier, but maybe we can elaborate. The modern-day medicines that exist to prevent fleas work differently from the way that they used to work. I mean, you were talking about shampoos earlier, and these are chemicals that went all over the animal's fur. And that was probably what designed to kill any fleas that may have touched that chemical. Correct. Correct. Okay. Do these drugs work differently now, though? I mean, when I'm applying some medication to Moggy, it goes sort of between her shoulders or on the back of her head where she can't turn around and lick it. And it's what, absorbed into her skin or spread out over her fur? Depending on the product. And a very important point to make is that many flea and tick products for dogs will kill a cat even at a very low dose. So you have to make sure you're doing the right product on the right species. Some products spread across the surface of the skin and the the salty, watery layer on the surface of our skin. Some of them actually um, integrate themselves into our oily, greasy sweat glands or our our pets' oily, greasy sweat glands. And some of them actually then get absorbed into the body and then released back out into the into the environment even to some degree. And the beauty of these products is they're so much safer than the ones back from the 70s and and 80s and even early 90s. But some of the over-counter products still contain many of these very dangerous 
chemicals. Safe enough that even if your dog or cat were to somehow manage to lick a little bit of it, it wouldn't be a problem? In the vast majority, I mean, extremely safe. I would say that the risk of catching a disease from a parasite bite is much greater than the chance of an adverse reaction. That being said, some pets don't tolerate. Some of them are available by pill form and given as a treat. Some of them don't like the way it feels on the skin. So that's why you check with your veterinarian. There's, as you can see before me, I I actually have an Excel spreadsheet of all the products. They've become so complicated. There's a huge number of safe options that are very effective. And we'll get into some more of those in a few minutes. But when we're talking about these uh, medications that are generally, um, let's talk about some of the topical ones right now. (laughs) One of the issues that I have is that Moggy can smell this chemical when I open the vial, and she hates the smell. Mm-hmm. And so that is one of the challenges of uh, applying this medication that I know is helpful to her. She doesn't know or care that it's helpful to her. She just knows it smells really bad. So that is one of the things that happens. So it's good then that there are a lot of different options because, of course, the best option is the option that you use and you use consistently. Absolutely. So these medications then disrupt the life cycle of the flea or or something along that line? Actually, that's a very good point. Some of these actually, mostly forked dogs, will repel the the fleas, which is very important if they're allergic. Some of them only kill after they've brushed up against the hair or the skin or after they ingest some of the blood. But the super safe ones, and for those of us who want to be extra, extra careful, some products are really just birth control for fleas. Mm -hmm. So those are extremely safe. And there's, in my opinion, virtually no reason not to be on on these kind of products. Or some of these can be spread in the environment as, as well. They're, they're called insect growth regulators or IGRs. How did chemists devise something that works that way? It seems like a kind of magic, really. <laughs> well, biology is magic <laughs> to, 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 to many people and including my, myself. But uh, it's a, think about it, uh, for instance, an, a, a little baby chicken having to hatch out of an egg. And in order to do that, it, it has to have the the muscles strong enough to break the egg as well as a little bit of a strong tip at the end of the beak. And the biologist and the chemist figure out, you know, if we can just disrupt the muscle that does that or the little egg tooth, if you will, then it only affects that part of the animal and it can't hatch out or sometimes it interferes with the reproduction. So it's very directed. Wow. That that is really remarkable. And this is, again, something that probably has come around in the last 20 years or so, maybe? Yes, slightly more than that. You're, you're showing your age. Now. Uh, <laughs> so uh, you mentioned one in which the fleas have to actually bite the animal. That doesn't sound like a very useful sort of drug. That would be like if you went and bought yourself some mosquito repellent, but it only worked if the mosquitoes bit you first and then they didn't like it and they ran away. Absolutely. So that's why the the best uh, control is prevention of the infestation. Okay, great. So let's get down to uh, brass tacks here and talk about some of these different medications. They sometimes work in different ways. They're sometimes applied or administered in different ways. Um, Let's maybe talk about some of the the big names and then we'll move on to maybe some of the more recent ones and and kind of what is at the state of the art. Well, uh, within the last few years, 
two of the big products recently became readily available over the counter, and that would be Advantage and and Frontline. And again, we have to differentiate and make sure if you're choosing one for a cat that you're not picking the dog one and splitting it because uh, products that contain repellents for the most part will kill most cats. Um, So both of these products uh, were originally intended to be used on a monthly basis and a huge leap forward in control back in, in the 90s. Over time, or particularly in very severely flea-infested uh, situations, we found out that uh, while it would work in most pet, that very sensitive pet a week or so before it was due for a repeat application, they would start itching again. You wouldn't find the fleas, but they would start itching again. And then with uh, administering them more frequently, you would be able to see better control. And for instance, the advantage can be used more frequently um, and is labeled as such, but the front line is, is not. But the front line may survive uh, bathing and swimming better than the advantage. Ah, gotcha. Okay. And this uh, will lead us now to take just a little detour here before we get back to some of the other medications to what I think you would call sort of layers of control, maybe even offsetting the the uh, the giving of these medications so that if the flea problem seems persistent or seems problematic, you can give one and then a couple weeks later give another and then another couple weeks later give the first one again. And so you've got a kind of consistent coverage uh, and maybe even you're kind of hitting it with some different chemicals even, so you're really covering your bases. Absolutely. I I call that double-down flea control. And usually you don't need that except in a few situations. One, once you have an infestation, you will have to do that likely for three to six months because once you see fleas and have an infestation, it typically takes that long to totally break the life cycle. Or if you have a flea-allergic pet who is exquisitely sensitive to the small number of fleas that they may be picking up outside or that you may be tracking in from your your environment or your yard or something al- along those lines. So if you have a drug that you're taking or your animal's taking, let's say you start with Frontline. Maybe mm-hmm. you administer it on the first of the month. Then maybe on the 15th, you can give Advantage. Correct. And then on the 1st again, you give Frontline and so on and so forth so that there is, in these extreme sort of circumstances, a kind of steady dose of different medications that are really working in combination to in a major way, upset the life cycle of those fleas. Absolutely. And that's why it's really important to also have these discussions with your vets uh, uh, about this, because if your pet is swimming on a daily basis, you may want to pick a different product. All pets, in my opinion, should be on heartworm prevention, and many heartworm preventions come with a flea product added to it. So there are ways, if, if you talk with your veterinarian, you actually may be able to reduce the cost of preventative parasite control in your, your pet. So Frontline and Advantage now are available over-the-counter. In the field of veterinary pharmacy, does the same thing apply as applies to human medicines where sometimes things just go out of patent and then these drugs become readily available? Yes, and that, that is what happened to the active ingredients in those two products. Those active ingredients are they work differently, right? So that the animal is safe to have the two different ones at the same time. Yes. In fact, the advantage is so safe, and that's that's one of my products I pick first 
uh, when people are, who are extra worried about it, that you can wash it off with several, several bathings. If it's just a mild bath, it usually stays, stays on. So that's an advantage, but also a disadvantage yeah. at the same time, if you will. And then the front line is one of the ones that kind of uh, accumulates in the greasy sweat glands of the body. So it doesn't wash off as easy. But uh, the advantage can be used weekly, whereas the front line is monthly. And both of those are topical. Yes. Okay. Now, let's talk about some of the other drugs. If those two have gone to over-the-counter status, surely then the pharmaceutical companies that make drugs for animals are working on something that will be uh, a prescription thing because probably there's more money in the ones that are available only by prescription. You know, long term, there is more money, but to bring a pharmaceutical agent to market this day and age costs around $5 million in the veterinary field. So one trick, fun one that I like is called Revolution because it is a topical product but gets absorbed systemically and it provides heartworm control, flea control, ear mite control, and some intestinal parasites. Or the companies may take the active ingredient in advantage and add something like moxidectin to it, and it's called Advantage Multi. So then it does heartworm, flea control, scabies mange, and demodex mange control. So yes, it's really, you can tell, it's fun and exciting. <laughs> Let's uh, take a little detour again and talk about the systemic kind of distribution. This is transmitted through the body how? Um, So, for instance, with the revolution, uh, it actually gets absorbed into the body, distributed via the bloodstream, and then redistributed back into the skin. So when a flea bites the animal, it's in the blood, and that flea will die. So while that is a great choice for general parasite control, if your pet is flea allergic, that may not be the best product for it because the flea has to bite them before it dies. But those are the ones where two weeks later, depending on the species, I'll add a repellent product. Okay, that makes perfect sense. Now, obviously, a lot of testing must go into these drugs so that these drugs that are kind of absorbed into the system don't adversely affect things like livers or hearts or whatever sensitive organs the the animals have. The research that is must be where a lot of that expense comes from. The research into the safety, they do safety before they do efficacy studies for the most part. Too. Wow. So just like in people, there is nothing without the potential for an adverse reaction. But often inaction and parasite control causes much greater harm than using a product that has been through safety testing to show that it is generally safe. But even then, there are some relatively effective, quite mild products that should be considered. So Revolution is one that does a little bit more than just flea repel. Let's talk about some of the medications that are administered, perhaps not topically, but orally. Great. Um, One of the recent standbys, if you will, is Comfortis, or it's combined uh, with a heartworm prevention called Trifexis. and, And arguably, it's my favorite single once a month parasite control product because it probably lasts slightly longer than 21 days at killing them quickly. Some products, you know, may get 100% kill 48 hours after the flea jumps on them, but if they're allergic, that that's too much. But then, for instance, if a pet has to be on ivermectin due to something else uh, going on or has a history of seizures, that's probably not the drug that I want to choose for them. Uh, there's a, a 
other ones that contain a, a flocks of sand, or I can I can barely say that next guard uh, that runs along those same lines. So they those are ingested typically as treats and have neat flavorings in them. So dogs look forward to it, and then it circulates through their blood and into the skin, and typically then works only after the flea has taken a blood meal. Mm. Okay, so I seem to recall going to the vet when I felt my cat had a pretty severe flea problem. And what I was trying to do is give her some pretty immediate relief. Mm -hmm. And I was told that there is a medication that she could take orally that would fairly rapidly kill any adult flea that was living on her body. Yes, that that one is called a Capstar. Capstar, correct. Yes, and it, it's fantastic. I mean, you can give them the pill, and within 30 minutes, you see the fleas literally dropping dead and falling off. Well, that seems like a miracle. Why, why don't all the drugs work that way? Because that only lasts for about 24 hours. Mm. And then and then maybe if there were any eggs around, those fleas can just jump right back onto the animal? Right. After the eggs hatch out, they jump back on, do a blood meal, lay more eggs. So I, ideally, I would like something that works that fast contains an insect growth regulator so that if anything uh, gets into the environment, it keeps those eggs from hatching out and a repellent. But there is not one product that does it all. Oh, and I would like for it to last for six months. Okay. So so there's your million-dollar idea. <laughs> surely, surely somebody is working on this. We and, and I do a fair amount of pharmaceutical industry, but that, that is the, you know, the, the holy grail uh, yeah. of, of the parasite control. Do you feel that that will ever happen? Um, I used to say no, but uh, recently two huge developments have occurred. There, there's a new product called Brevecto that's every three months and really quite effective. And uh, there is a a new collar, and this is new technology in this collar, um, the Soresto collar by Bayer, which is available over the counter as, as well. And I'm sorry to use brand names so much, but I just, that's no, the way totally my brain fine. works. Um, but this product lasts, they will say, eight months in flea and tick control. And it, this tick control also is labeled for using cats as long as you get the right right mm-hmm. dosage on that. So to have something that is tick control in a collar on a cat, and it's not the old powdery kind of, yeah. of flea collar. This one actually slowly releases the chemicals a lot like the topical products that you put between the shoulder blades. Mm-hmm. And they've done great studies to show that if you were to wash the animal completely, um, it repopulates the body in 48 hours. So it's it's a great uh, long-term flea control but not for the allergic pet, but for the flea or tick control. That's terrific. And, of course, we've got a lot more to talk about in this topic, particularly as it relates to our allergic pets. And there's so many more drugs that we're going to talk about, too. I just want to remind everybody, you're listening to Animal Airwaves Live here on WUFT. I'm Dana Hill, and I'm speaking with Dr. Dunbar Graham from the University of Florida College of Veterinary Medicine. We're going to take some calls. Our telephone number, 352-392-8989. Short break. Back right after this. Welcome back to Animal Airwaves Live here on WUFT-FM. And today is the 13th of December, and you are listening to Animal Airwaves Live. And if you'd like to join the conversation, our telephone number is area code 352-392-8989. In fact, we have a call. So uh, Dr. Dunbar-Graham, who's with me, let's go to the phones right now. Let's talk to Ellen in Archer. Ellen, welcome to Animal Airwaves Live. Hi. Thank you very much for having me. So glad to. Um, I just, I, I'm sorry I joined the program a little late, but I'm really, really glad that you're talking about this subject, being that I have eight animals. 
and flight control is a big problem, anti-control, et cetera. But what really concerns me is having a pesticide on my pet's skin that gets absorbed or even in their blood that it's absorbed throughout their body, especially since we've had so many pets die of cancer and liver disease, inflammatory liver disease and all these strange things, young, too young. And I wanted you to address that. And also, what about natural flea control, such as diatomaceous earth and garlic and stuff like that? Okay, great questions, Ellen. So uh, go back to your radio, and uh, I think that Dr. Graham and I will sort of mull this over. And as as you were saying a little bit earlier, Dr. Graham, you know, a lot of these uh, medicines undergo some pretty rigorous testing. But I think that you said, um, perhaps most importantly, that in your opinion, at least, the risk of not treating your pet for these is greater than the risk of treating your pet with these chemicals. But that said, uh, many people may have, for uh, reasons that uh, they feel are quite good, decided not to administer some of these chemicals uh, and may want some sort of option that is perhaps a little bit more natural or at least less synthetic. Yes, and and I actually wholeheartedly agree with that. The way I approach that is if you have an infestation, it's going to be very difficult to get that under control without going for some big guns for a short period of time. Uh, The question about diatomaceous earth or boric acid, those actually are, are the few, if not the only, natural products that have been shown to be helpful. And the way they work is by... Uh, basically scratching the parasite's exoskeleton or its GI tract so that they cannot survive because they're leaking air or body fluids and all of that. So those work best if uh, you have carpeting or cracks in your wood floors where the fleas are are hiding out or in the doggy beds and those types of areas. There are uh, some of the newer products actually have been derived from natural insecticides. For instance, uh, pyrethrins come from the chrysanthemum family, if, if, if you will. So they're quite mild, but they're not very long lasting. There is a, a newer product called uh, Activil, and it's what's called bioactivated in that it, in its form that it is given to the pet, it's of very low activity. Once the parasite ingests it, the parasite's GI tract converts it into an active anti-parasite. But what I also want to point out, and I, I can see this person's a pet lover. First of all, she has the same number of pets that mm-hmm. I have. <laughs> so it is a challenge and, and you worry uh, about them. So the big question she has, but now they're getting things like inflammatory liver disease and cancer and, and all, all of that. And when I was little growing up in the rural, rural South, nothing lived till they were, you know, eight or 10 years old. And, and then they died. And my, my last, you know, however, five or six pets who've, who've died have been 15 and they died of cancer or something along those lines. I I do have one cat who died of vaccination-induced cancer. It's called fibrosarcoma. That being said, I would not hesitate and still don't hesitate to vaccinate my cats. I'm more choosy about the vaccines that I use and talk to my vet. Yes, I have a primary care veterinarian who knows more about those types of things, about making those kinds of decisions. This day and age, the internet is truly a wonderful source of information, but it's 
difficult sometimes to to separate out the crazy information, even though it's passionate and, and well-meaning, from true scientific studies where we can put our finger on it. And studies looking at things like uh, garlic has shown that it's not effective. Mm. Uh, looking at Avon Skin So Soft, diluted out, can be effective for a short period of time. So your, your point is well made. Pick something that suits what you are comfortable with. But if I have someone that tells me, you know, that sprinkling, you know, something somewhere is working and they don't have fleas, I'm like, great, as long as <laughs> you, that's working for you. But if your pets are itching and you're not seeing fleas, it doesn't mean that you don't have fleas. So that, that's the sneaky part. Wonderful. Let's go back to the phones. Let's talk to Debbie on the road. Debbie, welcome to Animal Airwaves Live. In Florida, we need to treat for heartworms, and ivermectin is a wonderful, safe, and effective drug. But I'm concerned when I see some of these combiotics or, or combo drugs that we're treating for heartworms, fleas, and internal parasites every month, and that we're giving some dogs medications they don't need. Really great point, Debbie. Uh, let's talk about that, Dr. Graham. So these uh, combination drugs, as uh, Debbie mentioned, they will have some, uh, they will treat for some things that maybe the pet uh, might not need as consistently. So for instance, um, you know, let's say, let's say fleas aren't a big problem for you and you never see your pet scratching or anything like that, but maybe you do want to have some heartworm preventative. And so you take a, you give your animal a drug like Frontline, let's say, uh, or Revolution. Mm-hmm. Um, is the pet maybe getting some of the chemicals it might not really need to treat something that it might not really be suffering from? Th- these are awesome questions and awesome points. So I, I appreciate people bringing them up. And these are where you do have to have these kind of conversations with your veterinarian. For instance, the all indoor cat that never, ever goes outside or the the, the dog who does the same thing, uses pee pads or whatever, mm-hmm. really does need a different, different parasite control program than the one who runs in and out through the doggy door all day long. But it does get complicated because, for instance, Revolution is actually a single molecule that does all of those things. So it's a heartworm prevention, but also does these other things. But there are even more narrow-spectrum heartworm preventions. The Advantage Multi does the same and even a bigger spectrum towards intestinal parasites, but it has more than one product in it. So these are very complex decisions to make. Yeah, that's a great term that you brought up, narrow-spectrum. So could one go into one's veterinarian and say, hey— I really feel like my animal should have control uh, for this one condition, be it heartworms or be it for fleas, but I'm less concerned or I'm a little less comfortable with the idea of treating for this other thing. Can you give me a narrow spectrum kind of treatment? And your veterinarian might be able to recommend something to you. Correct. And, And obviously being a dermatologist, to me, heartworm control is number one. But flea control is number number two as well. So it's the rare pet in Florida who doesn't need flea prevention. You may not need aggressive flea killing drugs, but at least a adult uh, or I'm sorry, an insect growth regulator. Great. Let's go back to the phones. Let's talk to Conrad. Conrad, welcome to Animal Airwaves Live. Hey guys, uh, great show. I've got two chihuahuas. I've got a purebred applehead and I've got a deer chihuahua, and I'm really having a bad problem with. Please, not kicks. 
fleas because they're, they're indoor dogs. They sleep with me and they stay inside, but they also go outside. Mm. And I was, I was going to the vet tomorrow or Monday, and I was wondering if there was a, a drug that, that you would suggest that I ask the vet about because I need an aggressive treatment. These puppies are one's two and one's one. And, um, they're, uh, I put front line on them. I, I haven't given them the pills yet because they're so small. That's the one thing that I'm afraid of, of over drugging them. Right. Boy, you really called at the right time too, Conrad. I'm so glad that you did. Let's talk about that, uh, Dr. Graham. So he's, he's tried, he's tried something that he, he didn't really feel as effective, but he's concerned. I mean, chihuahuas are pretty small little animals, uh, but there's got to be something that science has created for someone like Conrad to give to his pets. And, and this is a perfect uh, uh, but unfortunate situation to be in. So once you have a flea explosion, if we if we call it that way, I'm, I'm sorry to tell you, but it's going to be three to six months until you achieve complete control. And that's because the fleas have had laid eggs in the environment and some of those are in the pupil stage and are resistant to treatment. So this is not going to be easy. A short answer is probably some form of safe double-down flea control along with environmental treatment for the fleas. Okay. So a double-down would be like he, he's, he's tried the one drug it, it didn't really seem to do very much. But if he tries that in combination with another drug, I wonder, would he uh, eliminate maybe some of the pet's discomfort if he were to try something like the Capstar? Do they make Capstar for an animal as small as a chihuahua? Uh, yes, uh, they, they do. Uh, but I think that we need to be on a long-term plan as well. And many of these products start working within four hours of application. Ah. And what is often... And I feel the same way myself, but scientifically, I know it's not true. So I have a, a an emotional brain and a scientific brain is you could have been using the right product for the past month and still seeing fleas. Mm-hmm. And it's purely because those pupil fee, fleas are hatching out of their egg and jumping and living for a short period of time on your pet. So no, no matter what you use, even the best product in the world for the next two and likely three months, you will continue to see fleas. Can you think of any brand names that Conrad might want to ask about or any particular products? Um, Honestly, they all work so well and each have their own little niches. They all have to achieve something like 92% control in set number of hours. So nothing leaps out of mind. The most important thing is regular preventive therapy. What about the dosage, though? Because Conrad is, of course, concerned that he's got small dogs, and a small dog should probably take less of the drug than should, say, a St. Bernard. Correct. And, And most of these products have what we call a therapeutic index of they can get 10 times the overdose without uh, uh, having problems with it. Now, there are some nuances and and other things along those lines. So you do want to make sure you're picking the right range of weight for the pet. And it's very common when trying to save money, I have too many animals myself, to try to buy the bigger size and then split it. But that's where we run into problems, lack lack of efficacy and also toxicity with it. So th- those are great problems, and he's already being proactive by checking with his, his primary veterinarian. And of course, as you mentioned, the checking the and or controlling the environment rather, that would involve perhaps taking some steps to mitigate the 
um, prevalence of fleas within the household that are not even on the animal. Correct. And, and going back to that pyramid, if you, if you will, there's yet to be adult fleas. And, and these are where your professional exterminators can help you out as well because it's easy to treat with a fogger, but really where those baby fleas and those pupil fleas are, they're underneath the bed and underneath the, the couch where usually those sprays aren't getting into. But let us say that you're someone who is a little bit afraid of the idea of having some chemical sprayed around the house that your pet may end up walking and maybe you have a baby mm-hmm. and this is uh, alarming to you. What can a person in this situation do? We talked a little bit about boric acid and, and this is available readily at your supermarket in a box of what? Borax, mm-hmm. right? And you can spread that around. And that is perhaps less poisonous than maybe some of the other kind of products that you might get that have a you know warning poison label on the bottle. Uh, but you also want the you also want the chemical to work. And so, where do you find that balance between something that is safe for your household, but also not safe for fleas? Great. So, for instance, the boric acid and uh, the diatomaceous earth, um, you can do that yourself in your home. It's better when a professional does it, if your budget allows, because they can bury it deeper in the carpet so it doesn't work its way out as as much. But then you can also indoors put some of these insect growth regulators in there that really have no mammalian or minimal mammalian toxicity, but only are on insects. And then there are ones that last a little bit outside in the yard too. So those are are wonderful at breaking the life cycle of the fleas, but we still will have that cocoon hatching out, jumping on. And that's where we do need something strong enough to kill the adult yeah. flea as they come out. So there are, there are flea preventatives that can go in the household that are not actually on the flea, but are not... Um, like how do these how do these work? I mean, if is this stuff that you spray or is it stuff that you spread? Or yeah, yes, they they may be uh, the common way is that they would be a premise spray, uh, almost like a uh, aerosol can that you can direct it. And in areas where you want to be careful, I I spray it more where they hang out and sleep and watch TV and eat mm-hmm. potato chips or whatever mm-hmm. they do in their their fun time. <laughs> uh, but it's good to spray the whole house when you have this kind of infestation going on that, that we're dealing with. So this this is war with these chihuahuas. You know, we don't want them to be casualties. Now, it occurs to me that it's possible, possible, maybe not even probable or, or, or likely, but possible that sometimes people will see their pets scratching and assume that it's fleas, but it could be something else. Can we talk about some of these circumstances and what it may be? Maybe you've never seen a flea in the house. Maybe one's never bitten you. Maybe you've looked carefully at your pet. Maybe you're like me uh, and you just took Moggy to the vet this last week and we're told she's essentially flea free, which is great. But sometimes she's sort of scratching around her ears or, um, you know, kind of biting at herself. Well, we do have other things that can cause itching and allergies, but the, quote, terrorist flea is still number one. Uh-huh. And I can think of many situations all indoors, 100% of the time, pets who you've never seen a flea on, you institute a flea control program, and within three months, they stop itching. Huh. But the other two common things that, that cause it would be the same things that cause allergies in people. So pollens, grasses, weeds, trees, 
molds, and in some cases, food allergy. Um, many also have a secondary bacterial or yeast infection on top of all those other issues. What causes my human allergy is actually my cat. So I hope she's not <laughs> allergic to herself. Uh, but I wonder, are there chemicals in some of the products that we use as people that our pets are sensitive to? Things that might be in our laundry, things that might be used as cleaners around the house. Consistently across the board, there's not one substance that is a big risk. That being said, I, you know, I have many pets myself. I, I feel like sometimes they're more sensitive than the other ones. So I cannot give you one example. Perhaps more common than causing itching, though, they can be respiratory irritants. So if you mm -hmm. have a, a cat who has asthma or a respiratory challenge along those ways, you want to avoid strong scented things. Or, and that's the case with the boric acid, if someone in the household has maybe respiratory issues, you don't want a particulate uh, that could be irritating the respiratory tract. Let's talk about a scenario that maybe some people have experienced before, or at least have noticed in their pets, and that is that you know, Fido or Fluffy's doing really great and then suddenly, you know, seems to be itchy or seems to have some kind of reaction that is not very favorable. Something you might want to check maybe, did you change the food? Food allergy is uh, clinically looks the same as an airborne allergy, which looks very similar to flea allergies. So they all look very similar. There are some subtle differences. Obviously, when they're chewing at their rump and you see fleas, you go, it must be flea allergy. But some dogs can chew at their rump with food allergies and have fleas at the same time. So you may treat the fleas and they still itch because of the food aller allergies. Dogs with food allergy, probably less than 10% of all itchy dogs have food allergy. So even though it's rare, it's a great allergy to have because you can theoretically, depending on the other members of your household, control what they eat more than what they breathe. Or mm. it's easier sometimes to control food than fleas even. We think of food allergies in people as things that cause kind of distress to our digestive systems. But that kind of is a little bit different, at least with our animals. They may develop kind of skin problems because of food allergies? Absolutely. And, and this is where you know, we've become so specialized in veterinary medicine. And as uh, dermatologists, we're the ones who do most of the allergy and don't always ask GI questions. But now we're finding many dogs that itch because of food allergies are having maybe more than three or four bowel movements mm. a day. So I do ask about gas, bowel movements, or the gurgling stomach. And if they have that, I will increase my index of suspicion from less than 10% to maybe 20% going on. Interesting. So what should a person look out for? A sudden change in kind of uh, the appearance of allergies or allergic reactions? Would that be a sign that maybe did you change the animal's diet? That's a great question. So flea allergies can happen out of the blue without any warning, and so can food at virtually any age. Whereas airborne allergies usually start off gradual with a little bit of chewing and biting and ear infections progressing and progressing episodically till they become year-round. Year so one way to categorize things are, okay, my dog is itching. What can I take care of within the next three to six months before I have to worry about airborne allergies? And flea and food allergies, uh, flea being so common and food allergy relatively easy to control, 
are a great thing to do. So you pick a special diet and they have to be prescription diets because a recent study found that many uh, of the over-the-counter diets that had their ingredients list in them certainly had those ingredients as the main thing. But when they did, you know, PCR testing, which is like CSI looking for DNA, they would find that things that said that they didn't have soy in them actually had soy. Um, or we worry about cross-reactivity. So long-term, your, your pet might be able to, to do well on those diets. But for this, the test, you really need a prescription diet. It seems like that scientists are creating new and more effective drugs all the time to treat allergies and to treat um, for fleas and other sorts of uh, parasites. And what I wonder is if there could ever be such a thing as a drug that reduces the animal's sensitivity in terms of its skin and, and its kind of susceptibility to allergens. That's a, a great question and one of the reasons uh, I uh, moved to the University of Florida because the, the best uh, dermatology researcher on our planet is is here at, at UF and, and numerous drugs are, are in the works but we're getting close to being able to figure out uh, what is the uh, reason why allergies seem to be so common at this point in time and unfortunately like many complex issues it's not going to be just one thing. But there, there are drugs that can provide nonspecific control. One of the uh, analogies I'd like to, to use would be, uh, for instance, a very popular, if you, if you watch TV these days or all the ads for, uh, uh, they call them biologics like Humira or, and to treat rheumatoid arthritis and, and all of these things. And um, the take home is on these drugs, if your life is hardly worth living, then certainly consider taking these drugs but beware because they work by modulating your immune system and therefore making you susceptible to infections and or cancer. And the same is true with some of the drugs that we use to treat uh, uh, allergic dogs with as well. Certainly steroids and high doses can do that, but careful use of steroids is a very cost-effective way of controlling allergies in, in the short term. Other drugs like uh, cyclosporin or uh, atopica, uh, and a newer drug called Apoquil that's very hard to get are, are wonderful drugs uh, to, be, to be used in the short to intermediate term. But long term, we'd like to try to figure out what's causing the itch and eliminate or control that mechanism so that we can decrease our worry about cancer when we're on these long-term medications. Dr. Dunbar Graham from the University of Florida College of Veterinary Medicine, thank you so much for coming back and talking to us today. Thank you. I want to say thank you very much to the guys in the control room. That would be Glenn Richards and Richard Drake. Thank you so much to the people over there at the University of Florida College of Veterinary Medicine. I'm Dana Hill. I hope you will join me again soon for another live episode of Animal Airwaves Live. Bye-bye. <laughs>